Well, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for this uh, very prestigious prize. I'm very happy to be here and to talk to you. Um, Bob McMahon and I did agree on uh, roughly 35 minutes and um, maybe I will spend something like 10 to 15 minutes on the book itself um, because it's related actually to the next book project and the rest of the time I will basically talk about uh, my new book project. Now, there's a lot of detail which I obviously cannot cover, so I probably will be very general, and I will just give you an overview of both, over both projects. Now, um, I actually don't remember when I got interested in the Sino-Soviet split, um, um, which then eventually became a dissertation in the book, um, but I grew up in Europe, in Switzerland, and my mother was German, half of her family lived in East Germany, so the division of the world, particularly of Europe, was always um, on my mind when I grew up. Um, my father was actually a Swiss Red Cross delegate to Korea after the Korean War, and I remember actually him showing me uh, black and white slides and uh, eight millimeter movies and so on. This actually this led me to fall in love with East Asia, and it's a sheer case. It's a case of sheer Orientalism, of course, and. Uh, this was then the reason why I started to study the Cold War in East Asia, and somehow I must have already had the, uh, the idea of writing a dissertation on the Sino-Soviet split, because Gadis, my uh, doctoral advisor, later told me that this was the reason why he actually accepted me into the PhD program at OU, just, I think, 70 miles or so down the road from here. Um, but I think another reason why I, I decided to study the Sino-Soviet split is because it would force me to travel far and wide. Um, as a student, as a, young, uh, as a young person, you usually can't afford uh, to travel far and wide. So I thought maybe you know, my university could pay for that. <laughs> and uh, the result was 15 months in China, seven months in total in Russia, and four months in Germany. And I think that is actually not a bad result of that decision. Now, let me talk a little bit about the book. Um, I really started with, uh, I started doing research on this book. Uh, in my first, I think, years in grad school. At that time, I was convinced that uh, the argument uh, about um, the argument of the book that it would be an international history and uh, it would be about national interest. Uh, I was also convinced that, in fact, the Soviet Union was responsible for the split because it was the more powerful. And I knew, of course, how the Soviet Union treated East Germany with actually a lot of contempt. And so I thought, well, this is a clear, clear, clear case of a superpower chauvinism with regard to a, you know, a smaller ally, more or less. This was what I, I believed then. Um, however, soon I realized that I was actually on the wrong track. Um, early on in grad school, still at Ohio University, I did write a paper on the 1958 Taiwan Strait Crisis in Gaddis's research seminar. I was very proud on that paper. I got an A, one of the very few A's. Uh, I also thought I did really a great job in tracking down all kinds of, of documents nobody had ever seen before. Then, you know, Gaddis said, well, maybe you should send it to Chen Jian, and Chen Jian should give you some feedback. And then after a couple of weeks, I got this email from Chen Jian, and he basically tore the paper up and said, you really have no clue what was going on in China at the time. You really have to study Chinese domestic politics. And so that actually then led me to studying uh, you know, Chinese domestic politics. And then finally, one of the things 
I was also convinced early on that the Sino-Soviet split was basically um, in place by 1963 that this, this date is also wrong, that the story really runs until 1966 and uh, it, the final chapter is really the Sino-Soviet split and its, its impact on the early Vietnam War. So what is the book about? Um, the book tries to explain how the split unfolds from 1956 to 1966. So it looks pretty much at a period of 10 years. Um, although I do think Mao as the person most responsible for the split, I'm, I do not assign guilt before, because I don't think so. The category of guilt is a useful category when you investigate the past. I argue that there are three major disagreements or three fields of disagreements in which the split actually uh, uh, unfolds. There's first of all disagreement over economic development. It's uh, the, the disagreement of whether or not the Soviet economic development model actually works in China. And the Chinese already by 55 realized that in fact it doesn't and they try to adapt it. Then there are disagreements over destalinization, which uh, all already start, you know, on a very low level in '55, but then break open essentially with Hushtov's secret speech in February 1956. And they run uh, these disagreements run uh, largely until '61, and then they disappear from the, from the discourse. And eventually there are disagreements over peaceful coexistence. How do we do actually with the United States or you know, in, in communist speak, how do we actually uh, deal with imperialism? And that really becomes very pronounced in 59 and goes through you know, to 66 and even beyond. However, uh, it's quite clear that the split is also a function of Chinese domestic politics to a much larger degree than it's a function of Soviet domestic politics. Um, De-Stalinization particularly undermined Mao's position within the leadership, uh, um, within this leadership group in China, and it actually provided a justification to his fellow leaders to um, reverse some of his economic policies he had put into place in 1955 and which had created um, some economic hardship, particularly in, in the countryside in uh, the, the spring of 1956. Um, how, however, much of this struggle between Mao and his uh, rivals is one that is more a struggle in his mind. It's not a, a real struggle. And he struggles with perceived uh, rivals he believes are out there to get him. And uh, there's very little evidence that, are actually, that there are rivals in the Chinese leadership that are out there to depose him, but he believes that this is the case. Um, and so his struggle against these invented domestic rivals, you know, is going to, it superimposes itself on the Sino-Soviet split, particularly after 1959, when Mao realizes that he had gotten everything from this relationship with the Soviets and he would not get more in terms of economic aid and even actually military aid. So for him, by 1959, the, the relationship had actually run its course. And then he uses this relationship, he micromanages this relationship, particularly the collapse of this relationship for his domestic, uh, um, for his domestic struggle with his in, in invented rivals. Uh, so, to a certain degree, after 59, the, the, the Sino-Soviet split is largely a function of domestic politics. 
Now, when I researched this project, I ran in a variety of problems. There was, first of all, complete lack of access to a central archival holding in Beijing and Moscow. That has changed a little bit now. But we still don't have access to any of the personal papers of, let's say, Mao Zedong or Zhou Enlai or, or Khrushchev. Um, and so I essentially have a gap uh, at the very center, uh, a gap of evidence. Now, um, the other problem is that virtually none of these leaders have left us any personal writings in form of published diaries or memoirs. The big exception is Khrushchev and then Mikoyan. But um, in the end, the, the, even there we have very little. So um, this really required imaginative solutions. If you wanted to write about it, you had now to think systematically about ways to get to evidence that at least would cover some aspects of, of central decision-making. And I decided to use secondary archives in China. That means provincial archives in China I used one. And then secondary uh, um, archives on the Soviet side. That means basically I went into the, op into the archives of the former communist allies in East Europe quite systematically. Now this provided me with a full range of very interesting documents uh, from internal speeches and internal assessments on the Chinese side to transcripts of conversations between Chinese and Soviet leaders or to transcripts of uh, you know, this East European countries or representatives of these East European countries with actually the leaders of the Soviet Union or China. So you have, um, you, you can find these transcripts and then through these transcripts you filter out actually uh, the thinking. That doesn't mean that I didn't use Chinese published um, sources. There's, uh, to a much larger degree, China, uh, on the Chinese side, we have actually uh, documents and memoirs published than on the Soviet side. It's quite surprising. The problem is that many of these uh, publications are, of course, politicized and, uh, because they have to pass censorship either indir indirectly or directly. So you have a couple of pitfalls there, and you have to cross-check quite systematically what you get from these memoirs and these documents. And you have often to put them into a different context uh, fr um, from the context in which they, are, which they were published or in which actually the authors or the editors are trying to put them. Now finally, the structure of my inquiry also turned out to be prob problematic and I realized that actually while I was doing research, it's actually much easier to write a book about the, the reasons why an event actually occurred and why did World War I or World War II occur. Well, you have a defined event, the start of the war, and then you work your way backwards into history and you try to find actually the causes. Um, that is, was much more difficult with my topic because in the end I didn't have a clearly defined actually event. I had the collapse of an alliance, which is a, a long drawn out process and I try to deal with the consequences. And the result is you know, that it's actually really difficult to trace down all the consequences and to decide when they really matter or when, when they are actually irrelevant to the story. And um, so the result is if I, didn't, if I had not actually integrated the Vietnam War, my book would end with chapter nine. And those who have read chapter nine realize somehow it's a story of how the Sino-Soviet alliance or the relationship just peters out. It's, it's not a good ending to the story. So I was very happy that I could actually talk about the Vietnam War, which is an important part of the story, of the military uh, aspect of the story. And it really um, allows this book to somehow end, or, or end with a big bang, I mean, with an interesting and fascinating story. Um, 
And this is, uh, I'm actually grateful that I realized during the, my research that Vietnam really played such an important role. And it really, I think, is good for the book. Now, I do remember when I submitted my first version, my first full version to, to Gaddis in the summer of 2003. And he was very good. He's actually uh, turning around. He was turning around the dissertation, I think, in five days or so. And they were full with, with remarks on the, on, on the margins. And then he told me, actually, that he didn't agree that the dissertation should end in 1966. He said, well, this dissertation has to go until 1972. And I was a little bit surprised because um, I had given him a year before a 60-page outline of my dissertation. And I, had, I knew I would start a job in Canada in six weeks. And, um, you know, so I was, uh, and I also didn't, I hadn't done any significant research on the 66-72 period. I had done some, but not really significant parts of it. So I was a little bit, uh, you know, in, in, in a pickle, you could say so. So he eventually agreed to, to retract his demand that I extend my dissertation in return of my promise that I would actually write my second book on this topic. Now, um, you, of course, could say now, well, this was actually a promise made under duress. And as soon as I got actually my, uh, my PhD in 2003, I could break that promise. Uh, however, what was really good is it forced me to think about the second book project. And this is essentially what I want to talk about now, about my uh, ongoing book project on the second half of the Cold War. Now, in this project, and these two projects are obviously uh, related, as you realize, because China plays, again, an important role. But uh, I am particularly interested in the characteristics of the post-Cold War world in Europe, East Asia, and the Mid Middle East, and how they were put in place before the systemic Cold War was over. Basically, in the period before 1989, how do we have, uh, how do the characteristics of the post-Cold War world Emerge like the phenomenal rise of East Asia to prosperity or the, the end of the division of Europe or the rise of Islamism to, uh, as a political force. This just didn't happen in 1989 out of the blue. There are antecedents. So I tried to, to track down these antecedents and um, basically start in the 1960s. Now, there are a couple of other issues where I think we should think more systematically about the second half of the Cold War. Simply, there are not many good books about that. Uh, there's virtually no synthesis. We have one on the first uh, half. I mean, this is Gattis, as we now know. Um, a lot has been written in, in, um, in form of introductory uh, texts. There are several good books, actually, on the second half of the Cold War from a regional aspect in English and German and other <coughs> languages. Um, we have also books on this period from, um, no, from the viewpoint of individual participants, be it the Americans or the Russians. Some books try to analyze um, not only the second half, but the whole uh, uh, of the Cold War from a very international perspective, basically put the, the superpowers into the background. Kieler and Wenger have done that. And then there are uh, books that try to extract larger themes, like Leffler's book, uh, recent book. But I still think there is very little written really with a focus on the second half of the Cold War, in particular on the regional Cold Wars and how they actually interact to each other. Now this leads me to another issue. This is, you know, what 
political scientists for a long time have called multipolarity. And uh, political scientists have written about that. I think most historians have just paid lip service to this concept. But we should really, as historians, take it seriously. Uh, of course, don't necessarily define multipolarity in the traditional term that you know, looks at the Cold War, at bipolarity, and then says, so it's bipolarity plus China, so you have multipolarity. Uh, understand it in a much broader context. Uh, my argument is that really multipolarity is about the rise of countries that have the ability to shape the world uh, in a way that they could not have done uh, in the first half of the Cold War. And that you know, includes China, but Germany, for example, is a very important uh, actor here as well. Um, and then proceeding from that assumption that multipolarity is really more, uh, more important to the past than just a scholarly concept, I suggest then to look at the Cold, the Cold War through this regional lens and uh, look at how these regional Cold Wars are actually connected to each other. And uh, my focus is on uh, Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia. I know that this is probably um, um, arbitrary, that uh, some of you might say, well, Africa really matters too, and Latin America as well. I do understand that. But um, the reason why I do that is, is it's, it has to remain a manageable project. And I decide to focus on the three largest uh, regional Cold Wars. And I think that's quite clear. It's the Middle East, uh, East Asia, and Europe. <coughs> now, what I try to do is, is not just have a series of case studies. You look at China and at Vietnam and Germany and you know, Islamism and the Vatican and whatever. But I try to push this idea that, in fact, the Cold War has a network of narratives and that we have to think about intersecting narratives. And I'm interested in these nodes and these intersections and how they influence um, other narratives, how China influences, for example, detente in Europe and or how China influences uh, um, events in the Middle East, for example, or how the Middle East actually in, in influences events in Europe. So what are some of the arguments I try to promote in this book? And I will not be able to cover all of them due to time reasons, but I try to give you a, a teaser, a couple of ideas I have and how they connect to each other. I start with this argument that the 1960s, very broadly defined 1960s, the late 50s to the early 70s, that the late 1960s uh, were a period of crisis in the Middle East, in Europe, uh, in the Middle East, in the capitalist liberal world, in the Western world, and in a socialist world. Uh, now, this is not new, I agree, but I think it's an important starting point. Um, in Europe, you, of course, have the rise of counterculture. In the Atlantic world, you have the rise of counterculture. You have disagreements among NATO members over, uh, over France, over France's role in NATO, over actually the U.S. escalation in the Vietnam War. This is all well known. You also know that the socialist camp collapses as, as a unitary um, in an actor, more or less, in the wake of the Sino-Soviet split. There's the connection to the first book. You have a Soviet-Albanian split. You have the Soviet-Romanian estrangement, and so on. Um, and I, to a certain degree, then make the argument that while the Western world, you know, Reemerges in the early 1970s, remarkably unified. This is not really the case with the socialist world. 
despite attempts by the Soviet Union with the intervention in Czechoslovakia. Uh, what emerges is a unified romp socialist uh, camp, and it's unified at the expense of its own reformability, and which does, this is really then a long-term consequence of trying to restore um, internal unity. And then I, uh, I look at the Middle East, and I mean, 1967 is a clear case uh, of watershed in the Middle East. It, is, uh, it undermines the idea of pan-Arabism, uh, 1971 destroys Pakistani identity. Pakistani is now, Pakistan is on a search for a new identity and reorients itself from South Asia to the Middle East and becomes much more Islamic than it was before. And then the 1970s also witnessed the slide of Afghanistan and Iran into internal conflict. So very clearly there are cases of, of, of internal stresses as well. <laughs> Now, thus throughout the 1960s, these internal crises in the Western world, in the socialist world, and in the Middle East were very pronounced. And this is from where I depart. I say this is actually a chance for us to look at, at, at the developments. Now, my second argument is that East Asia is really a decisive factor in the developments in the 60s and 70s. Now, most Cold War historians would think this is an odd argument because they look at Europe in the late 1940s, they look at Europe in the late 1980s and say, look, this is where the Cold War starts and this is where it ends. So why are you talking about the role of East Asia in, uh, in the Cold War? Well, my argument is that this kind of view is too simplistic and too Eurocentric. It basically imposes... Uh, um, an argument that Europe really matters to the Cold War, to its start and the end, and implicit, implicitly argues that it also matters to the, uh, the middle period, and that really the other parts of the world don't matter. But I say, wait a minute, this, this, we really miss here an important story, because the reintegration of China into the world in the 1960s and the Vietnam War really provide important impulses throughout the world system that then you know, shape events in Europe and the Middle East. Now, why is China so crucial? Again here, uh, the historiography obscures, I think, important developments. Um, most historians would see 1972 as the really important uh, watershed, Nixon's visit to China. Um, I just think when we look at Nixon's visit, we really and we think this is path-breaking. Yes, it's symbolically path-breaking. But what we miss is what China was actually already doing in the 1960s. It was already reaching out to the world. Um, and that's actually the path-breaker. The problem here is that China... It, it, this kind of interpretation is tied to this argument that there is a Sino-Soviet-Chinese power triangle and that you know, th this is really what matters, what we have to look at. But the fundamental problem is that China never actually thought in these terms in the 1960s. They, it, China never perceived itself as a part of a triangular relationship with the United States and the Soviet Union. And when he tossed out this concept and tried to understand what the Chinese leadership really wanted in the 1960s, we actually get a completely different story. Uh, one is that China is actually opening up to the outside world, to the non-socialist world, starting in 1960. And that's the non-socialist world minus the United States. Um, this is, of course, the result of important short-term needs, grain import. This is the reason why China engages with Canada, with Australia and Argentina. But it also needs, actually, technology imports for its own modernization project. And this is why it opens up to West Europe and Japan. 
1965, uh, Germany, the UK, and Japan make up, I think, 40% of China's foreign trade. Um, this is a complete change uh, over the 1950s. Now, uh, the Cultural Revolution slows down this development of uh, economic integration with the outside world, but it never actually stops this, uh, this, uh, this process or it doesn't reverse it. It's quite important, so this continues through the Cultural Revolution. Now, I agree that then 1968, the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia and the border war in 1969 really matters. These are watersheds, actually, for uh, Chinese foreign policy, but again, not in terms of you know, that now China is willing to engage with the United States. It's much, the, the, the significance is much broader. Um, what is really important is that China realizes how isolated it is in the whole world. And this then leads actually to a re-engagement with, with the outside world, particularly with those states that had been always friendly. This leads actually to um, an attempt to gain recognition particular from West European and Middle Eastern countries that are then crucial for the Chinese entry into the United Nations. And the side story here is, in fact, Sino-American approachment. Uh, and the side story becomes the main story only by 1971, at the time when all these, the, the other policies of engagement with the, for, with the outside world really have, uh, are running and are becoming really very successful. And um, the reason why I try to maybe reduce the importance of 1972 is also really nothing happens in Sino-American relations afterwards, uh, largely because the two sides have two very different goals. China wants to have an engagement with the United States for security reasons, to isolate the Soviet Union, and the United States wants to have an engagement with China to get concessions from the Soviet Union. And once it gets these concessions, relations between the two basically don't de develop to the frustration of the Chinese. It's very clear from the documents. The result is that, again, China in a focuses actually on Japan and West Europe, particularly on the emerging European community uh, in the 1970s. Um, now, keeping with my idea that the book is a network of narratives, um, how does China influence really these other uh, aspects uh, of the world? Now, of course, there's a profound influence on Vietnam of China. And um, China's role in the North Vietnamese war effort from the late 40s to essentially the late 1970s is at the same time of one of being a staunch supporter of Vietnamese unification, but also an obstacle to Vietnamese goals that go beyond the borders of Vietnam. Uh, to basically the Vietnamese claims that it, it tries to, to lead into China or even Southeast Asia. So as long as the Vietnamese were working for unification and the construction of socialism in their own country, they had the Chinese support. As soon as they were talking about and into China, uh, China was basically putting the thumb uh, on the Vietnamese. And that starts already in 54 at the Geneva Conference and that runs throughout the whole period into the 90, early 1980s. Um, then China and Vietnam, again, to, to keep in mind how you know, events in one part of the world might influence events in another part of the world, and that might be quite unexpected, China and the Vietnam War influenced detente in Europe. Um, detente, uh, I define this largely as a series of Soviet-American agreements on uh, nuclear arms limitation. So it would start in 1963, so I have a very broad, actually, definition. Um, 
What is so important here is that the American interest in the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1963 largely is grounded in fears uh, about the Chinese nuclear weapons project. Um, so, uh, of course, there is public pressure for an um, international pressure for a test ban treaty, but the reason why the Americans are so interested in 1962 to restart these talks is the fear of the Chinese nuclear weapons project. Then the Vietnam War does postpone the follow-up treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, because the Soviet Union couldn't actually seem to be engaged with the United States while actually the United States was attacking a member of the socialist camp. Eventually, it's the Middle East War in 1967 that puts the superpowers back on track. It's the fear of the nuclearization of the Middle East, which is now not a narrative that intersects, that actually um, brings the two together, you know, and then you have the nuclear test ban, uh, the non-proliferation treaty signed. So in all of these cases, China and Vietnam, you know, uh, many of these cases really matter. They matter particularly again in 1972 because you have sold on the ABM as a result of the Americans playing the Chinese card. So China is, is in this whole story uh, always in the background. And it's, it's really, I think, without China, we cannot fully explain this story. Um, and then, of course, detente has an influence on German genre approachment, has an influence on the Helsinki process. So we have then a, a spillover effect into, into other areas of the Cold War. Finally, China has a profound impact on the Middle East, and we always forget that. It was essentially China's, China's support for national liberation uh, that made, actually, the Palestinian issue to an issue for the Afro-Asian uh, movement in 1955. And it was China, the first state who rec uh, that recognized the PLO in 1965, nine years before the sponsors, the Arab sponsors of the PLO, actually managed to recognize the PLO. It was China who provided military and economic aid, diplomatic coverage, um, who kept the issue of the PLO alive. It even sent military advisors until the nine, uh, 19, early 1970s. But again, it was China who put the thumb on the Palestinians if they did something that was not in the interest of the Chinese. When Palestinians started to engage in um, airline terrorism, it's the Chinese who basically say, look, that's, that's the border. You cannot cross that limit. It's, it's quite clear. And it's again China who was, uh, in my view, prima, uh, very important in getting uh, the PLO entry into the United Nations as an observer in 1974. So again, this is an unexpected story. And it, it, we see how here, the, the story of China really matters in international relations. Now, my third argument, and I, I realize I'm probably running out of time soon. My third argument is that the realms of ideas and rights actually really matter in the story, too. And we can talk about the CSCE. I think that's a well-known story, how it did help to create parallel societies in some of the East European countries. More importantly is the story of the Vatican, and I don't say that because I'm a Catholic, I'm actually not, and I'm an agnostic, but uh, I want to give credit to where, where credit is really due. Um, the role John Paul II played after 1978 would have not been possible with the reorientation of the Vatican starting 20 years before, with actually uh, John XXIII, um, who is opening up the church 
to other Christian churches, but more importantly, who really decides to establish the Vatican as an international player in the secular realm, not necessarily a religious realm. And it's the Cuban Missile Crisis that actually sparks John, uh, that is John the 23rd, yes, to now engage in international diplomacy and to provide Khrushchev with the possibility of a face-saving exit from the crisis. It's again the Vatican, John the 23rd, through private diplomacy, through Norman Cousins, who puts the NTP negotiations back on track in April 1963. So again here, you know, we, we are surprised, you know, what kind of actors show up when you look very closely what is going on. And it's, of course, the, the concern here is a religious concern. It's the Pope's concern that what are we humans doing to God's creation in his word? But what is more importantly is he sets the precedent for the Vatican now to engage in international diplomacy, which is what, it, what the Vatican does. The Vatican, for the first time, participates in an international diplomatic conference in the CSE process. This is the first time that the Vatican, as the, the Pope as a head of state, not as a religious leader, actually acts. And um, the Vatican is absolutely <coughs> crucial in bringing in some of the human rights provisions into, into basket three. And these are precisely the provisions which then can be used by John Paul II um, to basically remind the Soviets that uh, the Soviet Union has made international commitments to human rights in 1975 during the, the crisis in the early 1980s. So to a certain degree, this is a story of unintended consequences, but it matters actually to the overall Cold War story. And then finally, I want to look at the rise of Islamism, which is also one that the Cold War historians really don't look at. And it's really important because um, it, it actually explains some of the events in the late, in the late 1970s and 80s but we cannot look at this story without actually going back to 1967, to the crisis, to the intellectual crisis in the Middle East, to the crisis in Arab nationalism, and to the soul-searching among many Arab uh, intellectuals, not only religious intellectuals, about what actually the Middle East or the Arab world uh, should do. And this all then leads me to my fourth argument, and I will now be very brief. I argue that the, all the elements that were necessary for the end of the Cold War to occur in 1989, the systemic end, you know, were essentially in place by the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, in East Asia, 1978-1979 is the crucial story um, because two factors that were responsible for the Cold War in East Asia essentially disappeared. This is the, the end of the unity of the communist-led national liberation movements between the Chinese, the Vietnamese, Laotians, Cambodians, and so on, with, of course, the Vietnamese war intervention in Cambodia and the Chinese attack on Vietnam. And uh, the really important factor that fueled a lot of these Cold War conflicts, the Sino-American antagonism actually falls away with diplomatic recognition and Deng Xiaoping's visit to, to uh, the White House in late January 1979. These are, in my view, the crucial events uh, in the Cold War in East Asia. I still think 72 is important symbolically, but when it comes to substance, these are the really important events that change the course and maybe even end, actually, the Cold War. Then there's a complex uh, web of events in the Middle East. Um, it's really the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty kills the idea of pan-Arabism, um, which always had a, a strong anti-Israeli bent. Uh, as a result, of course, the Arab League ex expels Egypt um, uh, from the League. 
there's also the foundation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. You have the rise of Islamic resistance in Afghanistan against Tibet Union. You have the rise of suicide bombings, uh, Islamist suicide bombings in Lebanon. These are all new phenomena. And what is important is that Islamism perceives itself not as a part of the Cold War intellectually. It actually rejects both Western liberalism and Soviet communism. And it's, 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 it's a political phenomenon we cannot actually slot into Cold War um, categories. So my argument again is that really the post-Cold War world emerges in the Middle East by the late 1970s, early 1980s. And then finally in Europe, the post-Cold War reared its head, post-Cold War world reared its head too. And this is largely due to more or less the economic collapse of the Comic-Con region. Um, if you look at, at statistics, you realize that intra-Comic-Con uh, trade actually declines in the 1980s. This is largely the result of um, high debt levels which, uh, the social, which various countries in the socialist world uh, incurred since 1971, particularly the Soviet Union, Poland, East Germany, and Romania. Uh, this leads to a debt crisis. And the result here is that these four countries have to think about how they do deal with it. And they do it in very different ways, but each of them actually negates the core idea that, socialist world, that the socialist world should be actually one economic system. Um, Poland defaults basically on Western debts and then sinks basically into economic agony for most of the 1980s. Romania embarks on an extremely brutal debt repayment schedule which subjects its socialist economy basically to the dictates of the capitalist world economy. Um, Hungary decides to enter the IMF, which is you know, the antithesis of actually Comic-Con. And then eventually East Germany knows that it can't do any of these um, uh, for ideological reasons. But in the end, what it decides is it decides to seek financial and economic integration, which is Western capitalist brother, West Germany. And at the same time, it also introduces some Romanian-style austerity measures. But in all cases, it's essentially the capitalist world system that now dictates economic development in, in East Europe. And uh, the very fact that the Soviet Union was unable to stop this development, in fact, the Soviet Union in some cases even encouraged this because it realized it could not maintain its empire of East Europe, really means that it, the collapse of the Soviet empire in East, uh, in East Europe really is ongoing in the early 1980s. Now I, I suggest I stop here so that uh, people can, uh, attendants can ask questions and I thank for your um, interest and for your um, willingness to come. Thank you. Shall I just field the questions? Okay. Yes. Um, if indeed your argument is that by the 70s, the, the post-Cold War conditions had existed, yeah. um, in your book you talk about why is it then that, you know, that the post-Cold War doesn't happen until the Yeah. Um, that's actually the last part of my uh, presentation I decided to cut. Um, I, very briefly, my answer would be uh, the systemic Cold War basically is going on and actually is, is revived by in the late Persian period and it really takes a new Soviet leader, uh, the reformers coming to power who don't necessarily put these characteristics of the post-Cold War world in place but they realize that they are there 
and they decide essentially to disengage from the Cold War. And this happens partially already in 1940, uh, 1984 before Gorbachev comes in power, particularly in the realm of relations to China. Uh, but it's very clear that by 86, um, the Soviet Union decided to disengage from Southeast Asia, from Vietnam, uh, to disengage from Afghanistan, and by 68, to disengage basically from the Middle East. It sends all kinds of signals to the United States. And it's also clear that at that time, basically, the Gorbachev administration tells its East European clients, you are now on your own. And this is very pronounced in the case of East Germany very early on. So it, 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 it's not that these, these characteristics are not in place, but it takes somebody to recognize that the post-Cold War world has emerged. And I think Gorbachev is really central to that. And Reagan really doesn't matter in this role. It's Gorbachev that, that uh, plays the active role in this story. Yes. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I have not read your first book. Mm. Uh, my question is, uh, did you um, consult publications like Professor Sun Jiu a leading scholar in China on Russian-China relations? Yes, well, I, I know him personally not very well. He has invited me actually to, to go to ECNU now in, in May and to give lectures there. So I will be there. And he was very crucial also in getting me access to now the foreign ministry archives in, in Beijing. So I know him. I have consulted some of his works, um, but it, I got actually to know him and his work once the manuscript was just in the copy editing stage. And um, luckily I realized that many of I, our ideas are actually very similar. So it, it doesn't really show up in the, my footnotes, but um, it, I... I I agree with many of his arguments, although I disagree with him when it comes to his very sinocentrist view of the world. There's a very st strong sinocentrism there. I'm probably closer to Shen Shihua. Uh, what Chen Jian was very crucial in actually pointing this out to me. And uh, then I, I didn't really use his work as a guidance for my own work. One of the first things I did is actually after I had my alls passed, I went to China for 15 months where I improved my Chinese and then systematically started to read the Chinese literature, uh, including Yang Kuei-sung has written as well. Um, and then it became, through that reading, it became clear to me that there's a, a very, I wouldn't say deterministic, but a very strong, actually, domestic factor in the story. Whereas Chen Jian sees domestic and, and foreign policy more as two sides of the same coin. Uh, I, I see a very strong, particular after 59, deterministic uh, uh, factor in the, in the relationship. But 59 is the important watershed here. I mean, before, the, it, it's much more open, I think. I wonder <clears throat> to what extent energy plays a role in this. You have, you've identified this largely in geographic terms, mm. um, to some extent in economic terms, but of course, the late 70s is the critical point. Mm. Where the Middle East begins to acquire its, its, its presence. It has a 
factor and as something that it can use against the others. The Soviets are self-sufficient to an extent in, in, in uh, energy and so are able to kind of run on lifeline here. Um, uh, the Americans are pulled into the region and are forced mm-hmm. to confront the fact that the region matters, but it doesn't fit into the Cold War. Uh, mm-hmm. So by the time we get to the Carter Doctrine, we're worried about the Soviets, but ultimately mm-hmm. that's not why we're going to be shooting anybody at uh, what, what role does energy play? Um, a big role. <laughs> Um, in 1973, the shock really uh, has influence in, in, in many parts of the book. Uh, it essentially, uh, this is one of the first things uh, what comes up is uh, the CSE process. And what the CSE process does, it forces the European Economic Community to come up with, with a common foreign policy, and this is the human rights foreign policy. And it's really the oil shock that almost kills, actually, West European uh, unity in 1973, because the British, are, who put uh, the human rights issue on the table uh, as a new member to the, to the EEC, basically they are willing to break ranks. Uh, in the negotiations, but it doesn't, luckily. Uh, of course, 73 is ex- extremely important in the realm of ideas and Islamism. It's Saudi oil money that actually pulls Pakistan into uh, the Middle East, and of course, it's Saudi uh, money that also then sponsors Islamist movements. And again, I say movements because there are, there are multiple movements. They have different sources. They have different agendas. It's not a unified movement. Now, the Soviet Union... Uh, the oil shock, of course, does matter. Um, and it is correct that the Soviet Union did actually benefit from high oil prices. However, it also meant that actually its imports from the non-socialist world became very expensive. So uh, the, the impact of high oil prices was dampened actually by, uh, by an increase of, uh, of the costs to import them. Um, of course, oil really matters um, in East Europe, particularly East Germany, uh, East Germany can uh, essentially uh, exploit oil, high oil prices because it gets actually oil at subsidized prices from the Soviet Union and then sells off some of that oil, of that oil on the world market for world market prices and basically cashes in on the difference, um, which the Soviets really don't like. That's also one of the reasons why the Soviets then start to cut actually uh, the oil subsidiaries in, I think, 1981. Um, And this really uh, is a major economic problem for East Germany, particularly when the oil prices then actually go down, because the East Germans usually paid oil prices to the Soviets according to a five-year average. And while then the the oil prices are actually sinking in inter- uh, Comic-Con uh, um, trade. In fact, the inter- uh, no, they sink actually in international trade. They are rising actually in intra-Comic-Con uh, trade, which is an additional reason why East Germany actually then runs into major economic problems uh, throughout the 1980s. But this is a story that then is repeated across actually Comic-Con in East Europe. So oil really is a, is a major uh, story, but its link to econo- economics is actually a story here. argued that uh, China started engaging the world before recent visits 
started pursuing engagement strategy uh, since the Clinton administration. But he, his book argued that actually the engagement strategy started from Nixon's visit to China. Mm-hmm. But this is, seems in contrast to your yeah. understanding that Nixon really did not in, interest in engaging China yeah. in that period. Okay, my answer is twofold. First of all is that we shouldn't focus solely on Sino-American relations because this really obscures what is going on. And when you look at Sino-American trade, there is some trade in the 1950s and and I I based this on Chinese statistics I found in uh, one of the books on on, uh, Chinese foreign trade. From roughly, I think, 58 or 57 to 77, Sino-American trade was at zero. There was no trade. There was inofficial trade through Hong Kong. And there's no doubt that some of this trade actually occurred in after 72. Um, but it's really, it, this story obscures the larger story. And the larger story is really this integration with the non-socialist world, minus the United States. And this engagement particularly with Japan. Japan becomes the major um, trading partner by 1974. It's a third of China's foreign trade is with Japan, a third. And this is, the Soviet Union had, I think, 50% in 1957, but it essentially replaces the Soviet Union. And then particularly important is Europe, West Europe, uh, uh, particularly West Germany and the United Kingdom. But interestingly, this whole story, this whole story is not really picked up by historians. And uh, on both sides, on the Chinese and the Western side, because this Nixon visit is, is seen as so central. And I try to actually revise that, uh, that view because I think it really obscures so much of the story. And it's a much, it's really a richer story, a, a story that, you know, leads into China being, uh, China getting Western consumer goods during the Cultural Revolution. Um, f- uh, color films from Agfa from West Germany. Uh, and all kinds of other consumer goods at the time when you have the Cultural Revolution going on, which is about ideological purity. How is this working on Chinese minds? I mean, we know very little about this, but it's, it's, it shows that this picture is much richer than just seeing 1972 as the big watershed. Yeah, and it, that's, uh, Hong Kong is important uh, as basically the gateway, the geographical point where trade is actually literally moved, right? Um, and a lot of this trade from the non-socialist world actually moves through Hong Kong physically. Um, and I'm sure that American goods are also moved to uh, uh, mainland China at that time. Probably semi, uh, semi-legally you still have the COCOM list, uh, but I'm sure you know, that there were ways of, of things being smuggled in through Hong Kong. Um, but still, when you look at just the size of trade, uh, we don't have a lot of this, uh, uh, statistics on this illegal trade. But I cannot imagine that it was so big that it, it, it doesn't occur in... in uh, it is so big that... Uh, it would have been so big that you know, it 
should occur actually in the literature, but it doesn't. I think it's significant, but it's statistically not significant. And, but again, you know, that's one of the topics I have, I have to dance around because we know very little about it. Are we already, yeah, we still have some time, right? Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank